Today on Never Was a Gamer, I can't wait to wake up the time fish. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and with me as always is that little fairy, I think, that guides Link around, uh, Dimitri. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> That's so you, in this one, isn't so it? So you know about a fairy. Is that in this one? That is in this one. Okay, yes. Yeah. Okay. okay, yeah, Michelle's going to be playing Ocarina of Time. I don't know what that fairy's called, but it's a little white ball of light. We'll get into that soon. Okay. But before we do... Before we get into Ocarina of Time, I need to check in with you because this is the last game we're playing until your From Software game. Yeah, it's it's the night before FromSoft. You're getting down to the wire. Everything has been building towards this. It's what I've been training for. Our you know, our first season of the show is really yeah, has been training you to play FromSoft. You're so close. Mm-hmm. It's FromSoft Eve. How's it feeling? Um, I am mostly I'm just focused on Ocarina right now because I'm really looking forward to playing this. And um, this is something that is easier for me to be excited about than a, cu- <laughs> a couple of the last things that I've played. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, and so it this feels like my um, I'm not thinking about the FromSoft too much because this is like my vacation before that. This is like the period where you rest and relax because the hard part is coming up next, <laughs> you know? Okay. I'm glad you're excited because I was worried that we kind of botched the sequencing here because you are going to have two pretty hefty games back to back. I was thinking, oh, maybe we should have done something that's shorter uh, or less intense now because you're you're going to be going on a big adventure. Yeah. Followed by another really big adventure. <laughs> but at least this one I feel enthusiastic, like stoked about, which means it'll probably end up feeling shorter overall than some of the other things that we've gone through <laughs> that were a little bit more of a slog or something. <laughs> Not going to name any Grand Theft Auto, so I guess it still lingers. We tried it, and now we're playing Ocarina. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so FromSoft is far from your mind. I guess we can keep it that way for now out of fairness. One thing at a to time. You. Yeah, one thing at a time. But I guess that also means, and, and you've already alluded to this, that you know a bit about this game because you're excited to play it. Yeah, uh, well, part of this is holdover from really enjoying Link's Awakening. Mm -hmm. Um, That sort of really flipped in my head whether Zelda as a series is like for me and something I'm going to be into. Right, so I guess one thing we need to address up front is why we're doing two games from the same franchise here. Right. Because to prepare you for your FromSoft game, we had to be really selective about the games that we chose from. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it, it might seem like kind of a waste of a slot at this point to do two of the two games from the same franchise. And really, this is this is my doing. So basically, I was working backwards and I was thinking, OK, one game that you really need to play both to get you kind of acquainted with some of the big kind of canonical games, but also that will help you with your FromSoft game is definitely Ocarina of Time. I'm that very checks- curious about what the element number two is. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But yeah, in my mind, right, that checks a bunch of boxes for what we're trying to accomplish with the show, especially during the first season. But then I thought, if you're going to play a 3D Zelda, you have to play a 2D Zelda. so You can understand the transition to the 3D Zelda. Sure. So that's why I'm being a bit pedantic about this. I do think there's some value of playing them in sequence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sure there's someone out there 
thinking, well, if you care so much about this historical sequence, you really should go back and play the original Legend of Zelda on the NES. And to that person, I say, mind your own damn business. Get your own podcast. <laughs> this is ours. Actually, we, we did we did do that. Michelle played a little bit of it. We'll yeah. talk about it later. But yeah, I do think there's really something valuable about playing a 2D one and seeing how it transitions into, into 3D. And then one day when you inevitably get to... 4D. No, when you inevitably get to Breath of the Wild, <laughs> I think you'll really get to see a, a transition happening that um, is worth it. It's kind of worth going through them. I, I, and again, like I think you enjoyed Link's Awakening enough that that it makes it that it makes it all worth it for you. Yeah. At this point, uh, but Ocarina of Time, I think, is the is kind of the big one, the one that you were the most familiar with hearing about. Yeah, I think it's it's the one that I knew even before this podcast is upheld by a lot of people as the best Zelda. And it's usually a candidate for like best game of all time lists, like not necessarily always number one, but it seems to be one of the names that's in the mix for a lot of people. Yeah, it shows up as number one a lot. A lot, right? And again, maybe less so now. I haven't really seen... People don't really do these anymore. Yeah. And I I definitely didn't verify this, but I bet if you go back to 2000, I bet there are a bunch of lists of like games of the millennium or like, Mm -hmm. I mean, games of the past thousand years, meaning the last 20 years. (laughs) But... Mahjong. (laughs) But I bet it Ocarina appeared at the top of a lot of those lists. Should we do the exercise where we go back to the year this was released and find everyone who didn't give it game of the year in their in the year it came out. I mean, this is still technically... So Metacritic wasn't around yet when this game was released, mm-hmm. but I think this is still technically the highest rated game on Metacritic, perhaps. Oh, wow. It's, And we'll, we'll talk about this later, but this is, for a lot of publications, the first perfect score they ever gave. Oh, wow. Um, for some of them, I think one of the only perfect scores they ever gave. We're talking Earthworm Jim numbers here. I know. This is... Yeah, this is like if There's Dave Hopper's <laughs> opened up his Earthworm Jim. <laughs> But but yeah, you're right. This is this is kind of upheld by a lot of people, especially people I think of our age ish. Yeah, yeah. As one of the best, if not the best, games of all time, and one of the definitely one of the most influential games of all time. And again, right? Remember, this came out the same year as Metal Gear Solid. So you have these two really big heavy hitters back to back, the same kind of for the same holiday season. This was the same year as Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, we covered this back in the Metal Gear Solid episode. <laughs> God, chronology is still so weird. It feels like this would have been after that to me. No, it was the same year. I mean, I believe you. (laughs) I just had forgotten. (laughs) So what else is it that you know about this game apart from its pedigree and and, and the fairy, apparently? Yeah, uh, I know it's 3D. I don't know if it's the first 3D Zelda, is it? Okay, yes. Okay, great. Um, I know there's a water temple with swimming. So to go back to the first 3D Zelda, so again, this might mess with your chronology, but... The the Zelda that came out before this one uh-huh. was Link's Awakening on the Game Boy. Like that's oh okay. Because Link to the Past came out before Link's Awakening. So right. Then you have the Game Boy one, and then it's the Game Boy one to this. That's the step. Okay, 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 okay. Um, yeah. So uh, I know that there, I know that there's a water temple because lots, and the reason I know that is because lots of people are like, yeah, the water temple's kind of crap, but it's still one of the best games of all time. <laughs> um, it's like one of the only asterisks I ever hear. Uh, I I know, or I think I know that you had. There's like an actual ocarina, and part of it is you learning to play songs on it that do different things. And I don't know hmm. what that changes about the world, or if it actually moves you through time, or something like that. But I think I know that you actually like learn different 
uh, songs on your little ocarina flute. The reason that I know that is it is I have a visual memory of my brothers playing this game back in the day and me just seeing them like putting in the keys to play the song on the ocarina. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that's this. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you did have an ocarina in, in Link's Awakening, so this will be your second ocarina. Yeah. It's not my first ocarina. It's my first <laughs> ocarina of time. Uh, for the exact same reason, I think in this one you get a horse who I think might be named Eponina. Eponina. Okay. okay maybe not Eponina. Something like that. Uh, like Epon... Like, its name is Eponina from now on. No. That's what we'll be calling it. Oh, no. From now on. It's something like E-P-O-N and then some ending. Okay. A pony? No, that's too stupid. <laughs> I don't know. I think you get a horse in this one. Its, it's name got a name. a pony. A pona or something like that. And I know about the little white fairy thing that follows you around. And that is essentially the end of it. Why do you know about this fairy? Uh, again, visual memory. I don't think that's of my brother's. I think that's just like a thing I've absorbed culturally about links. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but for some reason, I'm pretty sure it's in this one. Okay. Yeah. And that's kind of what you know. That's the the summary. Well, I mean, then there's the other stuff that I know about Zelda's generally now, like from, right. from Link's Awakening. Like, I, you know. Right. You've learned a lot just by playing even Link's Awakening. Right, 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 right. And so I guess that's where I want to go next. And we had this discussion when, you were, when we were talking about Mario 64, the transition from the 2D Marios that you were very familiar with mm -hmm. and what you were hoping would happen in 3D and what you were kind of worried about. So I'm wondering the same thing for Zelda. Now that you have played a 2D Zelda, have enjoyed a 2D Zelda, what is it that you're excited to see in the transition to 3D? What might be some of your hesitations? Yeah. So I think um, I'm really curious about how you would keep the Zelda map feel from Link's Awakening in a 3D space. And what I mean by that specifically is one of my favorite things about that game was how meticulously designed the space was and the density and expansiveness, like the the sense of size given to that game. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how you do that in 3D. I'm not saying there's not a way, but I, I, I struggle to think about that. Um, I'm not a game designer, so hopefully there's smarter people than me who are working on this. Right. And, and the challenge here is very different, right? Because you played Link's Awakening, so a Game Boy game. The challenge for them there was to make a Game Boy game that felt as expansive as the Super Nintendo game at the time. Right. Right. And so their solution there was really, like you said, to fill in the map, to make the a map, which is really not that large of a map. Like if mm -hmm. you're just going to traverse one into the other, it would not take you that long. But to just make sure that kind of every square of that map, every screen was as densely packed as possible. Yeah. Whereas here with the transition to 3D and the move to the N64... They have different limitations, but not those limitations. Right? And so I think, and you'll you'll get a sense of this when we talk about some of the history of the game and how it was promoted and what people were excited about. Here, they were really going for kind of an expansive mm -hmm. world. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's probably more what players wanted on a system like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm very curious about that because I think uh, part of why the Link's Awakening design is so impressive to me is because of what it does within its constraints. So mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious to see what you know, how that how that pans out in this in this one. And I mean, the N64 has its own constraints. So sure. you'll, you'll be able to, <laughs> I think, yeah, going in with that mindset, but thinking about it in terms of the limitations of the N64 and right. the limitations of, you know, 3D gaming in 1998. Mm -hmm. and going in and thinking about that, I think might be uh, might be fun for you to do. And I think is the right mindset to 
approach this with. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've been thinking a fair bit about how uh, the idea of having a camera would um, would impact mm. this. And one of the things that <laughs> struck me the most is I'm curious if that will really change how the spatial navigation stuff feels, especially in dungeons. Hmm. Because if when you're used to having this 2D overhead view, in addition to being fine, it was relatively easy for me to remember, oh, up from here is this other room and then left mm-hmm. from there is whatever. When you're turning around in space, there's a lot more for your brain to have to manipulate. Mm-hmm. And I'm usually not bad with those things, but the overhead, like I'm thinking about sight lines, right? Like with overhead views, you can... Uh, your like Link can be in a room and there can be another room beside him on screen that Link can't see, but the player can. That's like blocked by, you know, it's part of another hallway or something that you'll access later and come through the same screen, but you don't have access to it right now, but you get to see that it's there. And that doesn't work in a 3D space because you're not having that top down sort of blueprint mm. view. You're, you would just see that you're like in a hallway going going straight. So I'm curious about how they'll bait you into exploring what else is in that space when they don't have that perspective to rely on. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Like even uh, as a kind of simple version of this, right? In the 2D Zeldas, when there's a bombable wall, it's very clear right. from the overhead perspective. Right. And now, right, one of the questions you might have is, A, are there going to be bombable walls? And if so, does that mean you have to kind of do the entire perimeter, like walk the entire perimeter of the space to see if you can identify a crack or something? Or how are they going to direct you to those yeah. those points that on the overview, on the overhead view are pretty easy to find? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and related to cameras, because I know the camera was one of my biggest sticking points with Mario 64. So I'm really <laughs> curious how that is the the perspective is implemented in Ocarina. Um, and I especially have been thinking about this with regards to some of the ranged weapons and how that's going to work. Because I can imagine, like, when you're drawing a bow and shooting an arrow, I can imagine it going into a sort of scoped view where you, you're, like, aiming. But the boomerang, for example, is much more, like, shot from the hip. Like, all the times mm. that I would, like fling the boomerang and then still be moving and it would like curve to like mm-hmm. come back to me wherever I was. I don't know how you do that in in 3D and still have the angles and aiming work really well, at mm. least like with what I saw of the constraints on the N64. So I, I have no idea how that's going to go. I will tell you in this case, Lakitu has been fired. Okay. He's not making an appearance. <laughs> He's not holding the camera. That would be a while. That would be a crossover that... Uh, I wasn't expecting. In fact, there are no camera controls. Oh. Oh. Hmm. Oh, is that good? I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> this this feels like a blessing and a curse. <laughs> but a lot of what you're bringing up, I think, are a lot of the things that people were also wondering about at the time in, in terms of this transition to 3D. Yeah. What would what exploration look like, and especially dungeon-based exploration yeah. look like? How could you get that Zelda dungeon feel in a 3D space without completely frustrating the player? Mm-hmm. And then also, yeah, how would how would the combat work? How would the sword play work? But then also, how would the different you know gadgets yeah. work within that space? Yeah. But yeah, mostly I think I'm I'm not too worried about any of this stuff because I I sort of have the benefit of knowing how it ends, right? Like I'm not in the position of someone who like loves Zelda and was waiting for Ocarina to come out and was like, I don't know how they're gonna do it. Like, I, I sort of know that people were very happy with the outcome, which makes me feel not hmm. that nervous about any of this stuff. Like, even if some of it is annoying, I still feel hmm. 
I don't know. I feel relaxed about it. This is not stressful. <laughs> okay, good. Um, and I think this is a good time then for us to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about the history of Ocarina of Time. And we're back. So as we discussed before, Ocarina of Time came out in 1998, uh, a pretty amazing year for games overall. But this is much later than most people had anticipated. Of course, there is no secret that there is going to be a Zelda game on the Nintendo 64. That's an right. inevitability. Right. But we were expecting this game so much earlier. And Nintendo itself was expecting this game to be out so much earlier. <laughs> Uh, initially, this game was supposed to be out kind of at the latest at the end of 1997. It was supposed to be the big 1997 holiday release. And, and it, remind me when the N64 was released? Um, in North America in September 1996. Okay. So it's supposed to be within sort of the first year of its release, and then it ends up being, what, like almost midway into the console cycle? Yeah, I mean, the GameCube comes out in 2001, because these yeah, are much right, shorter right, right. console cycles. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But yeah, the, the initial plan was that you'd have Mario on release, the Mario team would then start working really heavily on Zelda mm -hmm. after some work had already been done on it, get that out for the next holiday season. Okay. And that just didn't happen. But this game was in development much, much earlier. I, I actually showed you the first footage anybody ever saw of this game, kind of a prototype. Right, that like 10 second clip. Yeah, that Nintendo showed at Space World 1995. So that was a big Nintendo trade show, Nintendo only trade show that they used to have in Japan. In Japan, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, and this was just a, a basic animation of Link fighting a knight. It's pretty, uh, like, simple. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's advanced compared to what you would have seen. It's in 3D, you know? <laughs> Link looks very different. Link's he's got weird little dot eyes. He's a little spooky. He looks more like the caricature, like a caricature of Link. Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. he, He's much more elvish, really long pointed nose. Yeah. Yeah. yeah little yeah. dot eyes. Yeah. And he's fighting a knight in a suit of armor. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing, I didn't actually see this video because this is 1995. Where am I going to see this video? But I didn't see this video, but I definitely saw screenshots of it. And I just remember the metallic nature of the suit and yeah. the reflections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because... Again, if you go back to the thing that blew me away about Mario 64, the mirrors. those mirrors, yeah, reflections were unbelievable. So I, <laughs> I just remember seeing that. They're like, we have this one technology, we're using it everywhere. Yeah, so this is what <laughs> Zelda 64 would look like. And then really after that, the information trickled out incredibly, incredibly slowly until 1998. Hmm. It had a really long development time, especially for that time. And Nintendo is being incredibly secretive. Nintendo Power, they'd often reference, of course, that the game was in production. Right. But they reiterate again and again, you know, that Nintendo and Miyamoto, who's producing, are being extremely cautious about what they what they release. So it was one of these games where there was so much excitement for the game because it was a Zelda game and right. going to be the first 3D Zelda game. But there was very little to latch on to really until mid-1998. I mean, before then, so in 1997... You know, you get bits and pieces of information, a screenshot here and there, but so much was unknown about what the story was actually going to be. 
like we get screenshots, for example, of this younger link and a magazine like EGM mm -hmm. didn't know. They were wondering, you know, is that the link? Is that, you know, oh, the link okay. to the past link? Is this maybe Link's son? Sure. I don't know. I just see that he looks like he looks much younger. Uh, we also finally, at the end of 1997, I was again a Nintendo Power subscriber, and there was an issue where they're promoting the first hundred screenshots of Ocarina of Time. Okay. Which is pretty exciting. That's a lot. Yeah. About 90% of them were like of the same animation. Like, oh. They were the crappiest screenshots <laughs> oh. going back. I'm sure at the time I was so excited sure. for them. You know now how when people take screenshots, you know, they... they have an eye to like composing the screenshot. Absolutely, yes. And what sure information is in it? Yes. Yeah. This they just needed to hit a hundred. I think <laughs> <laughs> there are maybe five. It was a, it was variations on a. They theme. just set up a camera to click every twelve seconds and played the start of the game. <laughs> Half of them were so dark you could like make out Link's hat, and that's kind of it. Uh, but but yeah, I, I I remember that issue, so I must have poured over those images for you know for weeks. But it's a long development. We only really learned that it was going to be called Ocarina of Time around E3 of 1998. That's late. Yeah, it's pretty late. And then, of course, between then and the game's release, we have to have all these magazines explain to us what an ocarina is. Right. <laughs> but in terms of the development of the game itself, it's pretty important for a number of reasons. Maybe the most important is this is Eiji Aonuma's first Zelda game. So he's the person whose name has become synonymous with the series, at least the 3D entries. Okay. And this was his first one. He joined the team relatively late in the development, and he was responsible for d designing some of the dungeons as well as some of the enemy characters and the boss fights. This is interesting to me because I normally, especially when we're talking about big Nintendo people, mm -hmm. I tend to, the names tend to ring a bell or I actually know, you know, like I know Miyamoto. Um, this one doesn't uh, doesn't set off any... You've likely seen him in interviews, maybe just not known who he is. Sure. Um, definitely any Breath of the Wild promo, if if there was somebody from Nintendo talking about it, it was by and large him. Okay. Yeah, you've, you might have seen him. Another person who was working on this game was Yoshiaki Koizumi, who you see all the time now. Um, he was one of the chief people uh, overseeing the development of the Switch. Okay. Who we talked about working on Super Mario 64. Right, right, right. After Super Mario 64 finishes, he transfers to this team and, and and works on Zelda. And and at the time, he's claiming that he didn't see a huge difference between the games. For him, these are both 3D action games, but in one, you press A to jump. That was kind of wow. what he, what he said. <laughs> wow. Um, and he says that the Mario team, a lot of the team knew that they were going to be put on Zelda after Mario. So they were thinking about Zelda during Mario's development and hmm. thinking especially about the difficulties of 3D combat. Hmm. Which is something that Mario doesn't really have to deal with. He's jumping around, but, there, but there's no combat. Not in the same way. It's not like, you're not in duels, you right. know? Yeah. yeah. And and they said even at the time, they were considering maybe downplaying the action and increasing the puzzle elements because they really didn't know how they were going to get around mm. around combat. Right. And and as you'll see, they, they came up with, I think, some pretty interesting solutions. And as you could see, even by that 1995 you know, 12 second video, the combat was going to be pretty essential to this game. It's Link swinging a sword and fighting a guy. Yeah. And I think because we play so many 3D games now, we take for granted, you know, combat systems in, in 3D and we might forget, you know, some of these, some of the challenges of, of making a combat system in 3D. Right. When you didn't have the formula yet, you didn't have all these tools already figured out. Right. You have to figure out, right. How is it going to work with the camera system? Mm -hmm. How can you have multiple enemies without overwhelming the player so they can, you know, focus on some enemies right. and, and fight them um, and not be completely frustrated by getting uh, swarmed Swarm. by enemies? 
How can you make sure that the player character is able to, you know, stay targeted on an enemy? Mm-hmm. And so these are these are all things that they were they were trying to figure out. And, and one of their big innovations, I'll tell you now, it's it's again a great use of the uh, the Z trigger. It's what they called Z targeting. Okay. And it was basically a, a targeting system where you'd press Z and it would just target like a lock on a lock. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And it would lock onto the enemy. And at this point, this was an incredible innovation. Hmm. You could press a button that would, you know, focus on one enemy and then your perspective and the camera would all be relative to that enemy until right. you locked onto somebody else. The other major innovation that kind of fixed the problem of, okay, if you're locked onto one enemy, how do you prevent all these other enemies from just swarming on you and, and really frustrating the player? So the story is that the developers went to a theme park and saw a show where there was kind of a ninja show and, you know, there's a protagonist who was a samurai who was fighting all these ninjas. And it was the traditional, you know, Chanbara martial arts style okay. where you have the one character and the, so you'd have your protagonist with the sword and then, you know, the enemies would approach one by one. Right, One right, enemy right. would come and the others would circle around. Sure. <laughs> waiting for their opening. Exactly. Waiting yeah. for their opening. Really waiting for the-, the For you to deal with this one. Yeah. Yeah, and that style is what inspired the entirety of of the combat system in Zelda. It oh, inspired cool. the targeting system and and it inspired kind of what the enemy AI would do. So when you were locked on, so as you'll see, when you're locked onto an enemy, mm-hmm. that will signal to other enemies to kind of hold back until you're done dealing with that enemy and then they can start swarming. Hmm. I wonder I'm curious as to whether that feels natural or feels very like because I I've seen fight sequences choreographed like that where it mm-hmm. looks like relatively you know, fluid and okay, and ones where it looks goofy as hell, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, so that's something to keep in mind. How do you feel in these duels? Okay. And I mean, I'm sure you've played games that still use that system oh, or that underlying logic, and you probably don't even notice that it's happening. With, but with a range of, yeah, uh, that and the lock-on targeting thing with variable effects. <laughs> Both. <laughs> like, I, part of me, when I hear lock-on targeting in this context now, I'm just like remembering the shooting in gta and being like please no but you know what i mean like that's that's to me like the worst version of it Mm -hmm. but there's then there's lots that manage this sort of thing like way better Mm -hmm. and yeah based on what i know everyone thinks of this game i'm hoping that they've like (laughs) figured it out here (laughs) yeah and there was so many other interesting things going on behind the scenes a lot of which came out in a really great interview that a lot of the developers of the original ocarina of time did with um, Satori Iwata is part of his Iwata Ask series. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so much great stuff emerged from that, including that initially Miyamoto suggested making Zelda in first person. Oh. Uh, yeah. He, he wanted to experiment with walking around in first person, but the, whenever you entered combat, the screen would switch to a side view during combat. Oh, so you flip to like a 2D almost. Yeah. They, or it would just be a locked camera kind of. Yeah. Koizumi mentions he didn't even try it out. <laughs> <laughs> Great idea, boss. We'll talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I think it was one of those. <laughs> also, you know, at first, due to the limitations of the cartridge size, and again, I know we talk about this all the time with, you know, the biggest car- yeah, cartridge yeah, of all yeah. time. We talked about this with it's Metroid. Like 14K. <laughs> yeah. Again, this would have been the biggest N64 cartridge of all time by the time it came out. Okay. Uh, but they were really trying to deal with these memory limitations. And so Miyamoto had initially envisioned that the game would take place completely within Ganon's castle. And borrowing again from Mario 64. Yeah. Yeah. He said, you know, he said, quote, I thought about putting all kinds of adventures into the different rooms, like making a dark meadow or an ocean, like in Princess Peach's castle in in Mario 64. Uh Uh-huh. 
Which, uh, spoiler, they do not do. (laughs) That's kind of a relief. (laughs) I feel like people would have been on to them having like played Mario 64 two years later and see it's the same team working on it and been like, um... Are we just only doing games and castles from now on? Or? Well, I mean, this this actually speaks to a larger concern that showed up in a lot of the magazines at the time, where people were explicitly concerned that it was going to be maybe too much like Mario 64, because uh, they were seeing the screenshots and they knew that there was overlap with the teams, and they thought maybe it was going to be too action-oriented, mm. uh, maybe there would be platforming involved, it might be a collectathon like Mario 64. Game fan was also concerned that it might borrow too much from Zelda 2, then a link to the past. So Zelda 2 was known for having, you know, difficult combat. It would have side-scrolling combat. Okay. It had some platforming. And they're really concerned that they were going to go back into, into that mode of game. Hmm. Which is really funny when you especially consider that the team itself was thinking of downplaying the combat initially, right? right like the, but, the concerns are different. Right, right, right. But ultimately, in the transition from 2D to 3D, I think, and I hope you'll find as well, that they kind of strike a really good balance between what the strengths of the 2D Zeldas were and what 3D allows. Cool. Because uh, this is, of course, the major struggle that the developers were going to be facing. And and Miyamoto even mentioned this, that he says, you know, when you change something from 2D to 3D, you discover that a lot of things become no fun. <laughs> or, you know, a lot of things that were really fun in 2D that you think would be so easy to implement, they're just not fun anymore. Mm. And, and one of the examples he gives is cutting the grass. In, you know, in A Link to the Past or in Link's Awakening and how fun it is to just, you know, go around and and slice the grass. And then but once you put that into 3D, he says that it's not as fun anymore. And and that's something they learned, but they felt like they had to do it because it had almost become a staple of something you do in Zelda games at the time. It was, again, about finding this balance of of old and new. Right. And that's a hard decision, too, because in that case, it's like, we don't think this works, but we do think it's part of our formula. Mm -hmm. So which wins out in that sort of competition to make this feel like a Zelda, but also understand? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and that's really one of the reasons I think Ocarina of Time is so special and interesting is that it does solidify what a Zelda is in 3D. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else that was really interesting that emerged from these interviews is that Miyamoto dropped that one of his inspirations for Ocarina of Time was Twin Peaks. That They said that about... He didn't, though. He didn't work oh. on Link's Awakening. And he actually had no idea that that was an inspiration for Link's Awakening. So he independently made this same like choice of inspiration for the series. At least at this point with the characters in Ocarina of Time. That is so crazy. And and in terms of what his approach to characters was going to be. That's cool. Yeah. In terms of his approach to the story and to the characters and in terms of populating the towns, he says, quote, some years back, a television show called Twin Peaks was popular. When I saw that, the most interesting thing wasn't the ins and outs of the story, but which types of characters appeared. Right. So again, this emphasis on the weird characters and you are kind of invested in just who these characters are just because of their strangeness yeah. in the yeah. world rather than, you know, their backstories or their right. deep relationships <laughs> or how they work into the overall plot. Right. It's purely just what's your deal. Yeah. And that's something that really appealed to him. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting that two different development teams kind of came to that, use that same inspiration source for their game. Yeah, that's super cool. And how they approach characters. And I think that's really why after... Link's Awakening, Zelda's got just so much more weird and interesting as as games and, and in terms of the characters, much more playful with the characters themselves than in A Link to the Past or anything prior. Right. And another thing that I think is worth talking about that was 
a major concern of the development team was the relationship between games and movies, which we've talked about so much. Mm-hmm. Because this was going to be a 3D game, the team pretty much knew that there were going to have to be some kind of cutscenes in it, right? There'd have to be some right. kind of cinematic scenes. It was almost an expectation at this point. And Miyamoto, though, I think has a really interesting thoughts on the relationship between games and movies that really distinguishes, you know, what Zelda does with its cinematics versus what Metal Gear Solid does and the, the, the direction that somebody like Kojima takes in right. terms of what they can do with cinematics. So Miyamoto says that as game developers, our intention is to create something that is movie-like, but not a movie. Game-like, but not a game, an arena that no one has yet experienced. Hmm. Because games require a powerful presentation, I suppose that in some cases, the benefits of a movie-like production would be reaped. However, everyone involved with this project was thinking, let's make a new media capable of competing with movies. Hmm. And so there are cinematic cutscenes in the game. They are not pre-rendered. They're all done in real time. That's partially due for memory limitations, but also because that is what Miyamoto prefers, because with real-time cutscenes, he can make changes up until the last minute. Oh, okay. <laughs> so too bad for the poor developers who are working on the cutscenes. It's like, I just love to meddle. He really does. Don't put any limits on my meddling. <laughs> but for Miyamoto, what makes the game cinematic is not the cutscenes itself, but really the camera. And so he says it's in the use of an effective camera in a real-time world that you actually add the cinematic elements. So it's it's cinematic elements, but that are part of the interactivity. It's okay, to make your right. interactivity when you're actually touching the world and interacting with the world feel more cinematic in the moment. Right. Rather than taking you out of the world and making you watch a scene. A little movie clip. Yeah. yeah. So that's his philosophy of the relationship between the two media. Cool. Right. And so when you see all of these competing challenges for this game, I think it's easy to understand why this game kept getting delayed and why it took a lot longer than than they thought. This conversion from the 2D to the 3D actually takes a lot of a lot of conceptual work and and things that you think you can just easily carry over from one to the other don't always carry over. Right. And also with the pressure of this being like one of Nintendo's banner franchises, right? Right. After, and I, I bet on in some ways the success of Mario 64 and like how beloved that was probably also just jacked up the expectations for mm-hmm. this game, right? Like you saw them nail it, the transition to 3D in that one. And so I can imagine, you know, people looking forward to this if like the Zeldas are your favorite thing that Nintendo does, being like, oh, baby, this is going to be a good one. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. And even at this point, I think the platformer had been the 3D platformer that had been nailed. Um, but at this point, I don't think there's a very strong action adventure game in 3D at this time. Cool. I mean, Tomb Raider's at at this point, but that that has tank controls. It's actually incredibly cumbersome. Okay. An action-adventure game that's fluid, that has an expansive worldview to explore, full of puzzles. That really hadn't been done yet at this point. Sure. Um, Mega Man Legends actually being developed concurrently with this game. And that, I think, gets a lot of those things right, too, but was ultimately overshadowed by sure. Ocarina of Time doing those things and, and getting really all the press. And speaking of the press, I showed you some of the ways that this game was advertised. Yep. By and large, at least for me... It was the reviews in and of themselves were the biggest promotional sure, sure, strategy, sure, sure. right? That so it was super well received right away. Is that the case? Incredibly well received okay. immediately. Mm-hmm. People saying, you know, just hyperbolic, greatest game ever made, sure. revolutionary game. You must play this game. Sure. Um, perfect scores in magazines that generally didn't give perfect scores. Hmm. For me, that's when I really started to get excited about this game. It was it was seeing those scores and 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 hearing about this game being something 
unlike anything I've ever played before. So special, so new. Yeah. yeah, because I was definitely more of a Mario kid than a Zelda kid. Hmm. And really, up until this point, I played Link's Awakening, I played Link to the Past a bit, but Ocarina of Time is really the game that hooked me on this series. Okay. And then have you played them pretty consistently since then? Yeah, I don't think I've missed one since. Oh, wow. Yeah. But other ways that they got me excited, if you pre-ordered the game, you got the gold cartridge. Oh, oh, my brothers had the gold cartridge. Yes, they would have got an early batch of the game. They might have, they probably got it either upon release or for Christmas that year. Yeah, that makes sense. Because uh, there is a there is a long history of Zelda games having gold cartridges. And, okay. and in this case, that was your pre-order bonus pretty much. Okay. Or, or at least if you got it in the first batch. I don't know if I got it for Christmas. I doubt my mom pre-ordered it, but it must have been just one of just the... Just close enough to the... From one of the pre-order batches right, that, right, right. that she got. Because right. I do have the gold cartridge. In terms of the actual promotional materials, I showed you some of the ad campaign. Yep. Do you want to describe what that was like? Yeah, they're like, um, so the the one single page print campaigns yeah. to start with are all written like um, in ye olde yes. language. This Okay, so this is something I want to talk about because this is something that the Zelda games, Legend of Zelda on the NES, and then this one used this strategy of... So, for example, the tagline here would be go forth and kick ye some butt or something like that. You know, it's, yeah. but it's using that ye olde yeah. language, which to me doesn't fit <laughs> the it's, series. It's not a medieval fantasy at all. game. Yeah. Exactly, and... I think this is why, as a kid especially, I was not incredibly invested in Zelda. Mm. Because this, that type of medieval fantasy does not appeal to me at all. Okay. <laughs> yeah, to this day, you're not like a huge Lord of the Rings guy or anything like that. Yeah, thinking about like medieval knights and, you know, kingdoms, like in yeah. that sense, in that kind of traditional... Yeah. Really Western sense doesn't appeal to me. You know, and now that you mention it also, even the the clip they showed of Link fighting the knight, that's also very in line with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, but I find these games don't actually have that tone at all. So Link's I don't Awakening know. didn't for sure. No, and, and moving forward, they don't. And I think there's just this disconnect between the the promotional strategy for the North American audience and what the games actually are. Right. I don't know if it's trying to downplay their Japanese-ness or trying to envision the series within these archetypes that they don't really fit in, but that they think are understandable to the Western audience. Well, and what's weird about this to me, too, is that... So if I was sitting down thinking about how to market it, market this game, I wouldn't think it's the Zelda part that you need to explain to people. You know what I mean? Like, you've mm. had successful Zelda games. Like, I think... The majority of people who subscribe to Nintendo Power, which is where I assume at least some of these ads were, like they probably mostly overwhelmingly know what the Zelda world and vibe is. No, like wouldn't you be more focused on like, here's what I mean, not necessarily. These weren't just they showed up in a lot of game magazines, but they weren't just in Nintendo Power, of course. Okay. And Zelda's never been the most popular franchise. Okay. It is very well respected, but it is not necessarily the the highest selling, especially at this point. And and I mean, your marketing campaign is always to try to get new people on board. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, it's it's definitely not high fantasy. It's like light adventure fantasy, I would say. Yeah, and I and there's there's still even seeing these now after all these years, I just look at these ads. I'm like, oh, like that. Th- I don't want to play this game, even though I know what the game is. You know what? I you know how I would actually describe them, including their sense of humor, like go forth and kick kicky ass or potatoes of couch prepare ye for a mashing you know what that is dorky it is dorky it's really dorky 
And uh, that's not necessarily something that I would, I wouldn't describe at least the Zelda that I know as necessarily dorky. Sure. I mean, those taglines specifically are dorky, but but for me, the thing that's alienating is the overall frame. Yeah. And as I was telling you before- well, but I'm calling is... the frame dorky too, like the whole thing. And and I remember too, this is how they used to promote at least the original uh, Dragon's Quest hmm. had the same, I mentioned this before, remember I didn't want to play them mostly because I didn't understand how overview works. Yeah, yeah. Um, the overhead camera <laughs> worked as a kid, which is probably why I didn't want to play the Zelda sure. as a kid, also part of the reason. But another big reason is because I was just so alienated by the framing of it as this right. kind of more traditional, you know, medieval high fantasy. Right. Which these games, none of those games are that. Right. <laughs> but then the other thing I showed you was the commercial. And I, I remember this commercial. I, this commercial played on TV all the time. Mm-hmm. And you want to describe this commercial? Sure. It also has some of these ye old timey. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, it's it's very call to adventure. Like, will you rise or will you fall? Will you live to save the day or will you die? It's all shots of Link doing all this. Right, and stuff. the the B roll is pretty incredible. Yeah, it shows uh, what looks like I'm guessing a couple of bosses. Like, if those aren't bosses, those are very very substantial and distinctive non-boss enemies yeah and it opens with a drawbridge coming down and somebody riding frantically out of a castle yeah. holding who you assume is zelda yeah yeah it's it's exciting it's cinematic to use that word again mm-hmm. like it's good it's well chosen footage but there's just this voice over it like calling you a pussy over and over and the the culminating thing after all these like Will you save the day? Blah, blah, blah. The last one is, will you get the girl? And there's a shot of what I assume is Zelda. Or will you play like one? It's just like, okay. And then, very Freudianly, the last shot is of Link at that at that exact moment, <laughs> punctuating that, stabbing his sword into, <laughs> into, a um, into a pedestal, just in case you didn't totally yeah. get it. Yeah. It's like... So... This so, is so weird because these are not okay. I mean, unless there's a real tonal shift, but I'm hearing from you that there's not. These are not macho games. No, and this commercial was amended. Okay, pretty swiftly <laughs> after that was taken out. I can't remember what they replaced it with. Okay, but yeah, they did get some pushback for that. Okay, because uh, even in 1998, that's off-putting. Yeah, but I think you're right that again the framing, and I don't know if there's a disconnect between the marketing team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the development team. But I'm sure, I mean, Nintendo signed off on this. Right. Well, and this is, there's a bit of another weird trend in this that also is present in the print ads where some of them are talking about like, uh, like gore and will you be thrashed, blah, blah, blah. There is, again, this emphasis on- Will you be mashed because you were a potato of couch? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So this touches on another weird trend that was present also in the the print ads that we looked at, which is this real emphasis on like the the uh, almost like gore or like extremeness, not gore, but like extremeness of of the fighting element. Oh, oh yeah. Like in so in one of these print ads after the, you know, after the uh, go forth and kick ye some butt. There'd be, you know, some text on the bottom. So it says, the most anticipated game of all time cometh to Nintendo 64. Rules? Nay. Referees? Double nay. Carnage and mayhem? Yay. Okay, so this is the thing. These are not, like, hard combat is also not what these games are about. Like, it's, again, weird to me that they're, like, they're presenting this as, like, 
a fundamentally a combat challenge, especially right. the the TV ad doesn't really say anything about puzzles. It doesn't show you shots of anything really other than I mean, other than the the horse fleeing the castle. The rest of it is all combat. Like seeing all of this, I would have assumed again that this was like quite a challenging sword mm-hmm. and shield combat game. Which, I mean, at least, again, that's not what the Zeldas that I'm familiar with are. Right. And I mean, it, it, if you think back to our first episode with the Super Metroid yeah, Lamshank it's the set. same thing over and over again. It's like it's like the only idea they have for how to promote this is like, it's so extreme. It'll turn you into a baby. Come yeah. play our game. You'll love it. Yeah. And it's so disconnected from what these games are. Yeah, like no matter what the and content what Nintendo is. Nintendo games are in <laughs> yeah. general. It's so weird. And in both of these cases, you have these really exploration-heavy franchises that downplay the exploration part yeah. in favor of the combat, which arguably is maybe the the least interesting part of those games. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it's just... I'm surprised we didn't get the thinking man trope in this one. <laughs> you know, that's the only that's the thing that's missing is like... There might be somewhere. Use there are some... your brain and your... Bra- like, I know that in one of the ads. <laughs> it's, it's gotta be. <laughs> but I think this speaks to to this time when... At least on the marketing side, there was a lack of creativity about how you can pitch these to an audience and what an audience might find appealing. Yes. And in this case, right, how you can expand your audience. Right. Right. Um, th- I think the the real irony here, especially with the, um, with the, will you save the girl or will you play with like one thing? Yeah. Is that the 3D version, so the 3DS um, remaster mm-hmm. of Ocarina of Time, that ad campaign starred Robin Williams and his daughter, Zelda Williams, named after Princess Zelda. Whoa. Playing the game together. So, I mean, that, that like just that shift from, you know, are you going to save the girl or be one to yeah. this woman who is named after Zelda. Right. Who has grown up loving these games, playing this game as... Is she like a teenager in them or is she grown? She'd probably be in her 20s then. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to hunt this down and watch it. This is interesting to me. And really, and I, I might be recalling this incorrectly, but I think Ocarina of Time was the last Zelda game promoted with this type of framework. Hmm. I think once you get to Wind Waker, they they understand that oh, these games are whimsical adventures. It would be hilarious to try to post that narrative onto Wind Waker. Like, I know what Wind Waker mm-hmm. looks like. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's something about maybe it was the popularity of Ocarina of Time or maybe it was just a different marketing team. Maybe, I, I, I want to look around to see if I can learn more about yeah, that's this. Cool. but. There was something where they just started to embrace what these games are and realize that they can promote that to an American audience or a North American audience or a Western audience Mm -hmm. and finally started in their marketing campaigns representing what these games are and really what they always have been. Cool. Which you now know a bit more about since you also dabbled with the original Legend of Zelda. Yes, I know all of the Zeldas now. So let's take a quick break and come back and talk a bit more about that experience. Okay. Okay, we're back to talk about Michelle's really quick trip into yeah. the original Legend of Zelda. We decided that since you did Link's Awakening, since you're doing the transition to 3D, since one day you'll likely play Breath of the Wild, mm-hmm. we may as well complete the loop, go back, and at least play a little bit of the original Legend of Zelda so that you can really understand the trajectory. Yeah. So you went and you played it for a few hours. Mm-hmm. 
To be honest, you probably got about as far as I've ever gotten in that game because <laughs> I've also not completed this game. Yeah, I've I've played it. I've played it a little bit, but not much more than you did. Yeah, I think I played it enough. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you, what did you think of this game and, and, and of this experience? And then I want to get a bit more into whether you think we should have maybe played this for the show. Sure. So first of all. I was really surprised by how much of the core Zelda formula is there hmm. in a very bare bones sort of crude format. Um, but I was surprised even to see, you know, enemy types that I recognize from later games. Um, you've got sort of the basic uh, sword and shield and boomerang and bow and arrow. You've got the overworld versus dungeon structure. You've got a little bit of the you can get to dungeons in different orders sometimes situation going. Um, you've got even a lot of the formulas for how dungeons work. You've got the rooms where you have to kill all the guys to make the key appear. You've got, you know, push this block to make a door open. Like you've got a lot of the there's so much that's recognizable. Right. At least the most basic of the puzzles are present. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I think that's pretty key. Um, there's a lot of visual language that's already in place uh, around like keys, doorways, stairways. Um, and there's there's a little bit of a kernel, I think, of that like weird flat sense of humor that these games have. Like there's very early on you meet shopkeepers who are like, just buy something already. Or like, wow, that's too expensive. Like who have the same sort of like not quite antagonistic, but sort of indifferent to you and a little bit weird speech patterns. Hmm. There's an old lady in a cavern that you meet and she says, uh, I'll talk to you if you pay me. And then there's like a 10 rupee thing, a 20 rupee thing and a 30 rupee thing that you can pick. And I pick the 10. And so I pay her 10 rupees. And then she goes, that's too little. And just like it closes, <laughs> like that's it, it's done. And that's the sort of thing that feels like it is in the spirit of Zelda that comes to be. It is also weird how how little those elements feel like they add up to without some of the finesse that I think have been present in the games that I've played. So one of the things that I think was most um, frustrating about this is that the overworld is much less distinctive screen to screen mm -hmm. and for me a lot the map pleasure was gone okay. like mm -hmm. it just and i you know i've talked about this so much i love the overworld zelda map um and so it just it was so easy to lose track of where i was and where i was going and i've i haven't had that i don't remember that being the case in link to the past even when i played link to the past as a kid i remember having a very good feel for that map hmm. um and certainly in link's awakening i felt like i came to know that so so intimately and this i just felt like i never knew where hmm. i was going you know dungeons are very linear i would say in this there's not really backtracking or getting objects and like oh now i can go back and open that room um it's yeah, just and there's get a little to bit it. of that and and a little bit in the later dungeons and in the overworld map, but sure. but you're right, not not to the extent. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it was it's really interesting to see so much here, and yet to feel like this certain life hasn't quite been breathed into it yet. All the elements that I think for me take a game like Link's Awakening from like good to excellent, like aren't aren't here yet. And I'm sure some of that is because of technical limitations, and some of it's just they they this is our first time doing this, but. 
yeah, it was it was really interesting and really weird. Yeah, so I guess my big question and the reason that I thought maybe we should play this and look at it together is more of a meta question, but I think we're coming to the point in the show where you've played enough games that mm-hmm. we can start having these conversations. Because we do play fast and loose with history, but one of the goals of the show is to kind of catch you up on all the stuff you missed. Mm-hmm. This was this one kind of missed you because you would have been so young when a this baby. came out, right? <laughs> this is not quite the same. But basically, do you think it would have been valuable to have played this instead of, or at least before Link's Awakening? No. <laughs> okay. No. Um, I think there is, I think there's a pleasure gap uh, in a really real way between this and some of the earliest games that we did select for this mm. podcast, like Super Metroid um, and Link's Awakening. It just, there's a flatness here and it's a, it's a really interesting like historical object for me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm glad that I spent the time with it that I did, but I, I felt like I was poking at it out of like intellectual curiosity mm-hmm. because I like what it becomes later and not, I wasn't just playing it, you know? So, so this is something I, I've been thinking about a lot. Like, so where's the line in terms of games that we could play that will fit the spirit of the show? Because I feel exactly this way about most games pre-NES, mm. especially. Like, I have no interest in, you know, doing anything on Atari. Right, right, Except right. for maybe talking about it for historical purposes. Um, but like you say, more as kind of a, an intellectual experiment, thinking about the history of these games, how they were made, the technical limitations, but not for the games in and of themselves. Right. I would never want to do, you know, two episodes on Pitfall. <laughs> right. And... And I wonder, right, is that just because that I don't have this nostalgic connection or is it something actually inherent in those games? And I've been thinking about this a lot. And because I don't have that much experience with those games, at least playing them, mm-hmm. I've read a lot about them. But again, going back to them, there's, yeah, this pleasure factor is just not there for me. Yeah. And I don't know if that's because I didn't grow up with those games or if there's something inherent in the games themselves because I, I haven't played them enough to be able to make that decision. Yeah. But... I have played the NES games enough. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, you know, we wanted to do a Zelda, but we started with Link's Awakening. We wanted to do a Metroid, but we started with Super Metroid, not Mm -hmm. the original Metroid. But I think had you not played a Mario game, we would have started with Super Mario Bros. Original Mario, right. And I've been trying to think about why. Mm -hmm. Part of it is probably because when I was young, I played Mario Bros. much more. I played Super Mario Bros. much more than I played Zelda or Metroid on the NES. Right. But I also think that I still think at the end of the day, Super Mario Brothers is basically the completed version of what the 2D Mario platformer is. Sure. Yeah, I can see that. I think Super Mario Brothers perfects what makes Mario platformers good in terms of movement and, you know, just the feel of the mechanics mm-hmm. and really... All the other games iterate on that, but I don't think the bare basics are improved upon. Right. They already had it. Yeah. Yeah. Like three has more imaginative levels. It has extra power ups. Sure. But the actual running and jumping and platforming is not demonstrably better than in Super Mario Brothers. Yeah. Whereas I think you're right that in Legend of Zelda, some of the ideas are there. And if you look superficially, you know, the bones are there. Mm hmm. But I think the core of what makes Zelda Zelda is not yet there. Yeah, there's a there's like a um, a soul or a life that isn't in it yet. Um, but but not even that. Like I think what makes for me anyway, what makes a Zelda a Zelda is 
that at a certain point, they figure out the perfect balance between what to communicate to a player and what to hold back to make for a seamless experience where you feel like you're adventuring but are never actually lost. Right. And I think this goes back to your issues with the map Mm -hmm. uh, and the Legend of Zelda map where it really does feel more like a maze. Yeah. Than, than a map. That's something you can actually navigate and, you know, look for, yeah. look for you know, landmark clues or, or some kind of contextual clues. Yeah. Instead of counting, okay, I go two screens to the left mm-hmm. and then one screen up and then one more screen to the left. Like I, w- I was never doing that in, in Link's Awakening or Link to the Past. Along those same lines, like in the dungeon and, and in the overworld, for example, there's nothing that tells you that you can bomb a certain wall. Right. You just kind of have to plant your bombs everywhere. Mm-hmm. They, they, it's too opaque. And at least up until Breath of the Wild, you know, actually, like the aberration here is the original Legend of Zelda in terms of not giving you any direction. Right. Because future ones give you so much more direction. You get cracks in the walls. You get little tile decorations on the mm-hmm. floor that suggest there's something here. Yeah. yeah. And often, often, yeah, often and in the best cases, the direction to the player is done through design elements and it's actually built into the world and is not told to you through a tutorial. Yeah. And later Zelda's, I think, maybe go too much in that direction. <laughs> but yeah, I, really going back, it's like, yeah, you can see the bones of Zelda, but it doesn't feel like at yeah. least what Zelda would become. Totally. And so I feel justified in not having us play it. Yeah. But yeah, I wonder if one of the criteria that is sort of uh, behind some of your, your felt decision making here is something like complexity um, or something like um, valuing variation and distinction and uniqueness like within a game. Because I think one thing that for me differentiates a fair number of the games that I think we're talking about as being sort of too early for our purposes is that sort of like I was talking about with the original Zelda formula, it like, it doesn't have the specific articulation of like each screen feeling so different and each encounter feeling so different which like you know uh, the super mario brothers mm-hmm. has very distinctive levels that have a concept and a that that game feels like it progresses it moves between worlds like it has um it has an internal variation that i think sometimes like a lot of the earlier games are a little bit samey but harder is sort of how they how they right. extend their play. Yeah. I mean, one of the, I wonder if this confuses or clarifies anything for us, but like if we were doing uh, puzzle or pure mechanics games, if I hadn't already played Tetris, would you want me to play Tetris first? Oh, for sure. Right. Uh, that's kind of intuitively my answer too, but I think that's, in, and I don't know what to do with that because on, it, it, you know, in theory, like that's a black and white game. That just does the same thing over and over again. It's not it's black hard... and white. It's it's green because it's sure. on the Game Boy. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there's also versions that are not green. <laughs> Later, yeah. But I mean, I just, I think that's something that superficially, that's a game that uh, invalidates a lot of the rules or criteria that I've thought about proposing for here. Because like that game, also Tetris is still so fun. Like right, if but... I had my Game Boy, I would play Tetris on my Game Boy right now. Right, a private game of it. Uh, they all are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I think that that is exactly the point we're making, that it, in terms of what that game is trying to do, it is the perfected almost version of that. Like a refinement almost. Of, yeah, it just they happen to get it the first go. Right, right. 
but as a as that kind of puzzle game it is still kind of emblematic of that and really you know games that came after iterate on that Mm -hmm. but i you know like if you're talking about tetris exactly like there's nothing has you know improved on tetris was complete basic formula yeah yeah. In the same way, you know, there are Mario games that I would say are better than Super Mario Brothers. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that in terms of 2D platforming, anything has improved on that exponentially in terms of just the basics of this movement feels really good. Yeah. You know, your jump height is perfect for where the platforms are placed. Your the the traction you get is perfect. Yep. Um, you know, when it feels like you're at the end of the ledge and you push the button at the last second, that maps on perfectly to your reflexes yeah yeah yeah, you know that it just feels so good and that's what the basis of those games are yeah and along those same lines i think in the case of tetris if you're thinking about the reflex based puzzle games Mm -hmm. this is something that has you know the bare mechanics and the bare rules of those games of that game just works so well and so perfectly that of course we can still play that now right (laughs) but like should we go back and play Pong because it was the best that Pong could be? I mean, sure. And so I, I think this is the other yeah, thing. Yeah, part of it is like, sure. Yeah. And I think this is the other thing. It's like, yes, we could play Pong. What's the most interesting thing about Pong pretty much historically is, you know, the conditions in which you played it. Mm-hmm. Um, at the one hand, you know, the communal aspect and then how that came into the home. Right. Like that's so much more interesting than the, the game itself. Of course, you know, the game itself, Pong is still fun. Yeah, I bet that's true. You I just, know- you just, I don't think we can get an episode of talking about, you know, how the mechanics of Pong work yeah. together to come up with some whole because it's, it's so simple that it's, it's almost obvious to make that point. But I don't think that takes away from how effective that is as a simple game. Yeah, what what you're talking about is sort of a more extreme version of something that I've had to navigate over the course of this whole podcast to some extent, which is that. Um, I I often for this podcast am playing games where I've played I I have already played later games that pick up on things that these games do right. and like and so I have to try to like unknow those things and meet this thing as if it were doing it for the first time and I can do that intellectually but I you just can't do it experientially that's just a fact it just is not going to feel to me the way it felt to someone whatever in 1998 um playing these sorts of 3D things for the first time. I guess partially what I'm trying to suggest is like these these games past a, that are in this super early phase. It's almost like we could do the the work of looking at these historically and having some of the conversations we tend to have about a game before I play it on mm-hmm. this show, but there just wouldn't be that much to say after we go away and play it and try to talk about it. Right, and then you just play be like, it well, that, yeah, yeah, then it was then it then it was pong you know (laughs) so okay keep pong in mind because i think you might be revisiting pong what very soon okay just just okay just keep pong in the back of your mind as you work through your games great but pong aside i think (laughs) the conversation we just had is going to be especially useful since you were going to be playing this game like as we said is upheld as maybe the greatest game ever made Mm -hmm. and i think it'll be useful for both of us to acknowledge that you can't put yourself back in night into 1998 no no 
and that and that's not an expectation. So I don't even know if this is is this even a conversation worth us having now? Like when you after you play this game, do you even want to reflect on it as you know the a best, best game, game of all time? All time. I mean uh, that like that's ludicrous on its face. Um, <laughs> the idea of declaring one like universal best. I mean I don't. I think that's like a bit of a boring conversation mm-hmm. even even to broach. I think we can talk about how it excels within its genre, within the Zelda lineage, um, what it does that is feels really good or um, has a strong influence on things going forward. Um, I just oh, I just don't care about bests. It's so I've I've never been able to like I've never had a favorite song or a favorite mm-hmm. book or like I just that's not that just is nonsense kind of to me. (laughs) Like it's like I have in what genre of what period of what, you know? So um, I think like, you know, probably every game we've played in this season has been somebody's, somebody would argue is the best, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And favorite is different, but there's so many, there's so many layers to this. I just don't, I just don't see what, the benefit is of slapping the label best on something. Right. So we'll come to you. <laughs> we'll come to Ocarina of Time with an open mind, knowing that it's going to be a little bit rough around the edges. Yeah. But also, I think right now you have a much better sense definitely than you did of where it fits on a timeline and what it's responding to and what it's trying to do and where the innovation could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess Earthworm Jim can rest easy because <laughs> its position as the best game will not be usurped on we, this show. We have no evidence to the contrary <laughs> and we never will. <laughs> Okay, and as always, before we send you on your way into the land of Hyrule. This one's in Hyrule? Or is it a dream? (laughs) Shut up. We do have a few quick predictions that I'd like you to make. Hit me. Okay. I asked you this last time. It's the one thing you've been wondering. Do you think finally in this game you'll learn the difference between Ganon and Ganondorf? I'm saying hell yeah. I'm saying this is the one. You think so? Yeah. This is it? I'm going to see Ganondorf. Okay. Or Ganon. Or both of them. Hmm. I don't know. But I'm going to... Yes, I'm going to find out the difference. Okay. Which of these is not a character you'll encounter? Okay. Impa, Asha, Navi, Ingo. Oh, Navi is the fairy. Navi's the fairy. That's what the fairy's called. I, oh, my God. Okay. I was hoping that you would fall for the bait because no, you'd be no, like, no, why no, is no. it an avatar thing <laughs> in this game? I remembered. Okay, say them again. Impa. You can just skip Navi because I know. Asha, Navi, Ingo. Ingo. Okay. Will there be Mario references like in Link's Awakening? I'm going to say no. I think that was a weird, uh, a weird function of the moment it was being developed. And I'm going to guess that that stuff didn't carry forward. Okay. Will you jump? Like that little hop across gaps, does that count? Yes. I'm going to, yes, yes, I will jump. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Will you obtain the Triforce? Oh, God. Okay. If the Triforce is an emblem that is on something that I get... Like, for example, if I get a shield with the Triforce on it, does that count? Or does it have to be a separate item that is the Triforce? No. Like, if you're one of these people who has the tattoo of the Triforce, they don't have the Triforce. <laughs> well, I don't uh, Will you obtain a thousand percent know what the Triforce is, which Link's Awakening did not answer. Um, uh, sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Why not? I'll get the Triforce. Okay. 
Besides the water temple, what is one dungeon theme you'll encounter? Wind. Something where you have to trigger switches or something that blow you in certain directions as you're moving through the space. Okay. So like you can't walk against the wind or like you have to get the scoot boots to be able to... Oh, the scoot boots are going to be in this game. I'm calling it now. There's going to be scoot boots. Okay. But that's not one of my official predictions. My official prediction is wind temple. Scoot boots are the Pegasus boots in case you haven't listened to the Link's Awakening episode. The which, boots will make you scoot. Which you should do. Michelle had a lot of fun with those games. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was really fun. Okay, and the last question. Mm-hmm. Where's Zelda? Ooh, with Ganondorf. With Ganondorf. Yeah. I'm, I'm swinging for the fences with this last one. Okay. Yeah. Those with Ganondorf. Pretty- with Ganondorf in the past. Whoa. Yeah. Yes. With Ganondorf in the past. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, you need you need a, a gutsy last prediction, I think. So yeah, with Ganondorf in the past. Okay. Mm-hmm. We'll check in with you next time when you'll have answers to all these questions. Yes. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, as always, you can find episode notes and more details about the show at neverwasagamer.com. You can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. And if you enjoyed this episode, it's a huge help to us if you rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you choose or tell a friend. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time when Michelle will be able to definitively state whether Ocarina of Time is the best game ever made. Because having an opinion on that is an important part of becoming a gamer.